Scrum. Welcome back to the Savage Chromecast, Season 4, Episode 17. I'm John. I'm Josh. And I am Luke. And we're here tonight to talk about some Kings of the Night. That's right. We are Kings of the Night. The, we are uh, the Night Kings. Josh, I think you said it's the new uh, the new metal band that's just here out on the street, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what, what would your King of the Night metal name be? Mine would be Brand Mac Shred. Brand Mac Muffin. <laughs> Cormac MacDoom. Cormac MacDoom. <laughs> That's a good one. I should have been more serious with my answer. <laughs> oh, man. Kings of the Night. But before we get to that... John. What's your one thing? Me? Oh, me. Yeah, he's running shit tonight. Oh, that's right. Uh, we, we ironed that out before. <laughs> My one thing is an album, and I think it came out last year, but it, I've been listening to it a lot because I'm already getting into the Halloween mood. Uh, it is the metal band Tribulation, and they had an album called Children of the Night, and I really like it. They're not a band that, I, that I've been listening to for a long time. I think they're like technically a death metal band. They're not technical death metal, because that's like its own little subgenre. I think they're probably melodic death metal. Okay. But technically, they're a death metal band, but this third album of theirs is probably their least death metal-y, but it still has the death metal vocals. But it's more proggy, it's more operatic, and it's it's like big time uh, changes in, in harmony and tempo. It's good stuff. Yeah. So if you're looking for a longer metal album to take you on a journey and you know get into some vampire shit you should listen to children of the night so (laughs) so they're like uh screamy dream theater no it's not so much scream theater (laughs) it's uh well maybe i'll I'll cut out a little clip and maybe we can drop it in drop it right here here. okay this is where that clip will go I can't make up my mind if I like it because I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll have to check them out. Cool. I guess Josh. Oh. Well, lately I've been playing a video game 
on my telephone, which if you told me that in the in the 90s I would be playing video games on my telephone, I would say, no, nah, man, that's not right. But lately Pokemon I've been playing. Pokemon are only in my pocket. They're only on my Game Boy. Uh, but lately I've been playing this game called Sorcery. It's Steve Jackson's Sorcery. And it is a an adaptation of a choose-your-own-adventure game that was released, I think, in the 80s, maybe. And you play this uh, chosen hero, uh, stereotypically sort of uh, selected to go on a mission to retrieve the crown of kings, which has been stolen. And you have to traverse this this uh, fantasy realm and visit these vill- villagers. And um, you have to uh, choose the right, like, wise sort of uh, selection at each juncture in this game. Otherwise, maybe you're going to fall down a mine shaft without a torch or you're going to insult the uh, the people in town and they're going to rob you of all your gold and drop you, you know, on the outside outskirts of the village. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a pretty fun game. It's addic- addictive and uh, I like it a lot. So um, you guys should check out. And I think it's been out for a while. Steve Jackson's sorcery i've been playing it on android i know uh luke have you been also playing on android yeah yeah after you told me about it i picked it up for my android device and and i (laughs) dig it yeah yeah like my little tablet and it's it's super pretty you know it is kind of like it's not live animation that's going on it's a lot of stills and things dissolving and scanning across scapes static line drawings i i assume from the original publications of these games. Um, from what I can tell the original publications were, you know, you, you go to whatever page, uh, corresponds to the decision you want your character to make, but they're actually dice rolls. And so you have a character sheet and you've got a, a D six and you've, you've got to make some rolls, uh, in order to complete this game. So there's a, a little bit of randomness and luck aspect to it as well. Yeah. It's, it's I have a really question pretty. about an app. That you two may play in the future. Okay. Have you heard about Night Terrors? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do not know about this. It's sort of like Pokemon Go for horror fans, they say, where you turn off the lights and your phone emits this eerie green glow, and then you walk around and you're supposed to fight monsters and stuff that pop out, but it also takes over your texting and email, and during the day at random points, you'll get these like horrific graphic images emailed to you with texts that say things like, we're coming to kill you. We're going to eat your eyes. Holy shit. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does sound really cool. I thought that it was already out because people have been posting about it, but I think I th- there's a beta test out. Okay. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, but it, I think isn't officially going to be released until Halloween. Would you play that Luke? Maybe. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would. So long as it doesn't drain my battery. Uh, I, yeah. would, I would probably be up for it. The same way. We are old. Like, <laughs> I don't want to have to charge this thing every night. Confounded batteries. So I have to charge it three times a day. But anyway, yeah, everyone check out Steve Jackson's Sorcery. Um, I downloaded it. I think it was five bucks, maybe. Um, and it was worth it. I've, I've gotten a lot of replay out of it. I dig it. Can I give my metal name now? Can I pick a new one? You can. What is it? Brule the Beer Slayer. I like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If we're all going with, with how we're already in name. Pounding beer since the Thurian age. What, Do John? I get my one thing now? Yeah, Can you're you in charge things. again? This feels unnatural. Nope, you're in charge. My one thing is a movie. What is it's it? It's called Assault on Precinct 13. Who directed that movie? John Carpenter. I like that guy. Films. 
He is pretty cool. <laughs> I got free, or Kara, or my wife and I, Kara, she and I got free tickets to Suicide Squad. And I had already had tickets that same night to see Precinct 13. So I watched Suicide Squad and then this movie. And it was a great palate cleanser, I have to admit, to get the taste of Suicide Squad out of my mouth. So you're not a Suicide Squad fan? I wish that they had just remade Assault on Precinct 13 with DC characters. And that would have made an amazing Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I do want to see it, but I don't know that I want to see it in the theater. And that ends one thing. I think we have another one thing that we do want to talk about as a group, though. A cool magazine that came out, right, Luke? Yeah, this is like the collective, the collective fang, uh, and we kind of we kind of talked about it last recording uh, with with Rusty, and we've mentioned it, you know, a few more times. But as of right now, Skelos number one is available. It's out, and it's worth mentioning uh, just because. There's an article in here that's kind of pertinent to the Brand McMorn saga, right? Fan those pages. Uh, you, you're holding Josh a physical. You're holding a physical copy of Skellos. That's right. I am. I am. There, How does it smell? It smells like a new book. It has like that textbook smell, like going back mm. to school, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, man, it's it's pretty cool. I read a handful of the short fiction and most of the essays in here at this point, uh, and I have to say, I'm glad that I supported the magazine uh it's pretty cool uh the 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 essay that we wanted to mention specifically is a friend of the show jeff shanks has an essay called nameless tribes robert e howard's anthropological world building in mint of shadows so rusty went on about that uh in pretty good detail and referenced some of shanks's points in uh, that previous episode, but it's worth mentioning that if you really want to get into the nitty gritty about what potentially influenced the evolution of, of, of Howard's world building in that story, like this is, this is the essay to, to read, I think, you know, as far as a contemporary summation of, of what's known. And Josh, you put a lot of detail in that last blog post for the, the, for the, our episode that, I think points out some of those formative books too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rusty actually sent quite a bit of information our way, uh, some bullet points and notes and pictures of the, the books that Howard would have used as resources to put together these early brand McMorn stories. And uh, uh, several of those are mentioned and covered in, in more depth in Jeff's article in, uh, in Skellis. So if you haven't, if you weren't a Kickstarter uh, Skelos backer, then I think you can go to skelospress.com. Yeah, I think we'll put the actual link in the show notes. I'm, I'm flying, flying blind here, but uh, you can go and, and pick up issue by issue. So you can go actually purchase your own issue now. Uh, I'm not sure how long supplies will last. I don't know if this will be a print on demand sort of thing. But uh, if you want Skelos, number one, you better act quick because this thing's going to fly. It's going to go. Yeah, and hopefully you can get digital copies, too. I know through the Kickstarter you could get the digital copies for three bucks a pop. Uh, And I don't know if there's a mechanism for buying that on the the Skelos Press website, uh, those digital copies. But surely that's something that's going to get set up. So if you don't want to, you know, splurge for the, the 15 bucks to get a hard copy delivered to your door, uh, you'll probably be able to find it that way too. That's true. You can save some bones that way, but this is the kind of thing that you might actually want to have a hard copy of. It just, it's, it, it looks nice. The, the paper is high quality. Everything looks great. Uh, so it smells like book. It smells like book. 
yeah, you can't just open it on your Kindle and sniff your Kindle because your Kindle is just going to smell. Someday Amazon will have Amazon smell, though. That's Yeah, that's true. Well, it'll be an add-on for Prime. Prime members only. With that, we will move into the story. Luke, give us those publication details. Uh, so, yeah, so we're going to be talking about... Kings of the Night. I'm going to flip to the publication details. Her. So, copyright 1930 uh, for Weird Tales came out in November of that year. It was also reprinted in Arkham House's Skullface and Others. Uh, the brand McMorn Dell publication. I read it in my Bane uh, Cheesemo big bare-chested brand McMorn edition that's pretty, pretty great. Uh, it has the Weber uh, essay on the front end that we discussed with the the previous episode that we keep coming back to. This is there's a lot of good content within this this cheap beater paperback. So I'm glad that I picked it up that way. And you guys read it through the the Delray publication, right? I read it on Project Gutenberg. Oobadoobadoo. Really? I I actually do have the uh, Delray Brand McMoran The Last King uh, compilation, which has a ton of content, not just the stories, but an excellent. Uh, uh, Robert E. Howard and the Picts, a chronology, which details uh, the letters and resources and uh, important dates in putting together these Brand McMoran tales, along with uh, something by Rusty Burke and Patrice Lunay, Robert E. Howard, Brand McMoran and the Picts, which is a complete treatise on uh, Howard's use of the Picts and his development of Bran specifically. It's it's really a cool resource. So. If you haven't picked this up in the uh, Del Rey series, do yourself a favor. Treat yourself and pick up the Bran Macmore and the Last King. You can hear the pages, not digital. It doesn't smell as good as Skeletor. <laughs> you guys are hating on the I'm a hipster the digital, tonight. The no, digital I like copies. digital, but man, this, this just looks good and feels good and it's on my shelf and Amazon can't take it away from me. It's true. That is a true statement. All right. So let's talk about this story. It's kind of cool. I like this story a whole lot. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Good. Uh, it's got badasses doing badass things. There's a little ghostiness to it. Time travel? Uh, yeah, there's some time traveling. We get, like, a ponderous philosophical coal. How cool is that? I love coal. Uh, I was not expecting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really sure how Howard was going to put together this, uh, this early example of a crossover. This is a superhero crossover story, isn't it? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and and you know we've got our buddy Cormac, which I'm gonna just continue to think that it's our our Cormac MacArt, right from the other story, right? Maybe not just like a redundant usage of the name, but it's our buddy, right? I I don't think so because I think this takes place about 500 years prior to the Cormac MacArt tales, right? But I mean, Cole came forward in time, so who's to say Cormac MacArt didn't come backwards well, in time? I know we're gonna talk about that Joshi article, mm-hmm. uh. But, like, there's inconsistencies as far as a couple of the Brand McMoran stories, too, I think, right? That's true, yep. So, yeah, in my mind, it's like a, it's a swirly pool where all of this shit's happening over, like, a, <laughs> like, time, time doesn't, doesn't just hold constant. Yeah, it's meaningless. We yeah. perceive it one way, but uh, others perceive it quite differently. Right, Gonar. John? Like Gonar. Like Gonar. Gonar. So, where are we at, Josh? <laughs> Well, we are uh, north of Hadrian's Wall, which puts us at least, um, in terms of history, post uh, 127 
or so uh, CE and probably closer to around 300 CE in terms of uh, where this might take place on a historical time scale. But like Luke mentioned earlier, that doesn't really matter so much. Um, and we will talk about a, a, an article by a certain uh, Lovecraftian scholar that kind of runs down some perceived problems with this tale. But let's not let that slow us down at this point. Bran McMorn is in need of uh, convincing about 300 or so Vikings to join his army uh, and kick the Romans out of this part of Britain. Yeah, so we have uh, our Gallic point of view character is is Cormac, right? And he's laid in with Bran. And so Bran's not necessarily the star of the show. Uh, well, no, he is the star until Cole shows up, right? Like right, they kind of yeah. share the stage. But our POV is is Cormac telling telling the tale, right? right? Yep. And so this this Roman army is coming north. They all know it. They're desperate. They need to put together a force to repel them because if the Romans take a foothold in this section of uh, Britain, then uh, who knows what's going to happen to the Celtic and Pictish tribes that uh, live there. What's interesting to me is pretty much from the jump, Bran McMorn is referred to as a king in this story, whereas in the last story, he was a chief, right? He was a Pictish chief. So at this point, I guess he's become king. Yeah, but he also mentions, too, that he's, they're calling him that term, but he really hasn't fully united everybody. Like, that's the fallout of the story here, right? Like, he, they're not a unified front. They need uh, someone to show them that they actually can hold the line here and push back. And in doing so, that will provide the rally point that says, hey, we can keep doing this, you know, and at least keep the foothold of what we've got. And so the Vikings have lost their leader to the the Romans in a, a skirmish that takes place prior to the beginning of the story. Uh, and their leader's name was Ragnar. Right, John? So that's a that's a historical name. Can you tell us anything about Ragnar? Ragnar Lodbrok. Right. Yeah. So who is this now? This is, if you've ever watched the TV show Vikings, this is one of the main characters from that show. This is uh, Ragnar Lothbrook, who, okay. who was pseudo-historical, pseudo-mythological? Mythical yeah. folk hero in Scandinavian mythology that discovered how to sail from the coasts of Scandinavia outward to like this, the British Isles, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the Romans have killed Ragnar in this story, and the Vikings... They're thinking about defecting to the Roman side unless Wolf here the 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 Northman is sort of he, what do they call him the schemer or the the oath breaker? Yeah, that sounds about right. Like he's he is not trustworthy in his his alliance. He's he's right. standing on some sandy ass ground. Like well, he's shifty. Well, what he's saying is that Ragnar pledged allegiance to Bran, but with Rag, Ragnar dead, that allegiance is broken. That vow holds no weight. Whereas Bran thinks that that vow stood for not just Ragnar, but all of the 300 or so Vikings that were under his command. Yeah. And so the Vikings want a new King. And if Bran can't produce somebody, uh, then they are going to go join the Romans and Bran needs these Vikings. He's got a plan. He needs the Vikings in order to enact it. Vikings is a bit generous of a term. Like, are we, are we accepting that they're Vikings? And that this is like 800 CE, or they're just they're just northern reavers, right? Like I mean, that's yeah, what he that's, calls them Vikings. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about this then. Uh, 
in in my in our preparation for this uh, this episode, I found an article from a uh, a book called Two Gun Bob: A Centennial Study of Robert E. Howard, edited by Benjamin Zoom. <laughs> I'm going to butcher that name. Sorry, Benjamin Zoomski. And uh, this article is called Brand McMoran in History. I don't know if I said that by S.T. Joshi. He of H.P. Lovecraft scholarship fame. And in it, he points out some of the inconsistencies and historical um, anachronisms within this story. And one of those is this presence of Vikings in the tale that uh, really Vikings never came into contact or uh, conflict with uh, the, 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 the whole of the Roman Empire at its height. And so Joshi, I don't know, he, he doesn't come out and say this story is invalid because of it, but he does sort of write some things that make you think, okay, he, he doesn't really, doesn't really feel this story holds a lot of literary merit or weight because of that anachronism. Well, I guess I would open by saying I find that to be silly. I mean, we're talking about a story in which a Valusian king dream travels forward in time to fight the Romans with some picked people. Like we're working within Howardian time, right? Right. It's, it's not supposed to be a realistic scenario. So I don't understand why, like why you would take so much umbrage with that. But he is accurate that if we're talking about Vikings, that's not until like 800 or 700, maybe that we really accept that the Viking age begins in earnest where they start to come down from Scandinavia and raid the British Isles and, and, and Europe, Western Europe. Right. Um, and so in the Del Rey, uh, Brand McMoran, the last King on page 329 in the section, uh, Robert E. Howard and the Picts, a chronology. There's a letter, uh, to Harold Priest uh, that was written sometime in October of 1930. And I'll read the first couple lines from it. Maybe the first couple paragraphs here, because it, it builds uh, something that I'd, I'd like to point out. So he says, have you read my latest story in Weird Tales? I believe you'll like it. It deals with Rome's efforts to subjugate the wild people of Caledonia. The characters and action are fictitious, but the period and the general trend of events are historical. The Romans, as you know, never succeeded in extended, extending her boundaries very far into the heather and after several unsuccessful campaigns retreated south of the Great Wall. Their defeat must have been accomplished by some such united effort as I have here portrayed, a temporary alliance between Gaelic, Cymric, Aboriginal, and possibly Teutonic elements. I have a pretty definite idea that a slow filtration of Germanic settlers had begun in eastern Caledonia long before the general overflow that swamped the Latinized countries. And so I'll just stop it there. And so Howard's saying here that he he realizes that this isn't exactly how history went. But if you can throw in some uh, Teutonic Viking-like people into a story and make it sound cooler, then why not do it? Right. What's more metal than that? Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so uh, earlier today, I sent uh, our friend uh, Mr. Shanks uh, a message on Facebook and just said, hey, what do you think of this Joshi article? And what do you think of the historical anachronisms in um, Kings of the Night? And he basically said that 
you know, Howard has a better handle on history than uh, a lot of people, Joshi included, uh, really give him credit for, firstly. And secondly, um, just like we, we just said, who cares? It's a, it's a fun story. And like you pointed out, John, uh, Cole is time traveling forward to uh, take leadership of this band of, of Vikings to do their 300 Spartans thing in this uh, gorge or whatever. This holler. Well, and there, there could have easily been Northmen in Caledonia or Pictland or whatever you want to call it. I don't think that. I don't think it's fair to say that that never happened. Like I, I, I have trouble agreeing with that. I guess. Which is that Josie Joshi's argument? Is what Joshi's argument? That that Northmen were not there, present during something like this. Well, that Vikings were not there. Okay. Um. And so the second paragraph of this, of this letter, real quick. Someday, I'm going to try to write a novel-length tale dealing with that misty age, allowing myself the latitude that a historical novelist is supposed to be allowed. I intend to take a plot something like this. Dealing with the slow crumbling of Roman influence in Britain and the encroachment of Teutonic wanderers from the east, the, these landing on the eastern coast of Caledonia press slowly western, westward until they come in violent conflict with the older Gaelic settlements on, on the west. Across the ruins of the ancient pre-Aryan Pictish kingdom, long pinned between implacable foes, these warlike tribes come to death grips, only to turn on a common foe, the conquering Saxons. I intend the tale shall be of nations and kings rather than individuals. Doubtless I shall ever write it. So he, he didn't really write the novel, but he did write a lot of stories where he threw a lot of these peoples into the blender and, you know, kind of uh, put it on high and then out poured this, uh, this kick-ass story. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing is, sure, it's, it's fine to delve into these historical inaccuracies, whatever. That's, that's food for discussion, right? Yeah, I think it's cool just to sort of couch things and, like, this is how it really was. Like, let's, let's parse it out and, and talk about the specifics. Like, not to detract from that, like, super thorough essay that Joshi, Joshi put together. Like, it's, it's useful. It's just that you gotta, you gotta just take the story as it comes, too. There's the suspension of the, the historical accuracies your belief in that right and i wonder if it would be more useful for someone criticizing howard to uh, at least a story in this brand mcmorn cycle to be familiar with the the grand scheme of of this literary canon and read you know men of the shadows and read the hyborian age and those types of things before you know throwing out statements like oh well this isn't valid and I'm not sure where he got this and, and that sort of thing. Then again, I really, to, to put a, to say something positive about it, uh, Joshi puts forth a, a, a nice little historical outline of the Romans activities in Britain, which I thought was pretty useful. Yeah. I, that's, that's the reading that essay. That was by far the, that's what I found so, so interesting about it. Was it actually explained the century to century happenings, which I don't have as firm a grasp on as, as I suspect both of you do. But I know in John's case, he seems to be pretty knowledgeable about the, the history, the chronology of Vikings and that sort of thing, just with some of the, the other stories that we've talked about. I mean, I'm not saying you're a Vikings expert. I see you shaking your head over there, dude, no, I'm, but <laughs> I'm saying it's probably born in you, right? Isn't uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, 
the answer to the question of uh, the historical timeline of the story really is, why don't you just enjoy the, the story? Um, to, to take it out even further, there's an essay that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. I guess it maybe was a lecture, right? On fairy stories. That's have you right, have yeah. you read it? No, um, I have not. He gets into this notion of criticism and uh, uses the analogy of a, a soup and talks about how, you know, it's fine to talk about the soup as a soup. But if you're trying to suss out, you know, what the bones uh, were like to make the stock and what ingredients were in the soup and and all of that stuff, then maybe you're missing the whole point of the soup. Um I think that's funny that that Tolkien said that, given like the the scholarship that's out there regarding Tolkien, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and you know it may be like you know looking at other people's uh, soup is fine, but don't you judge my soup? Right. It could be that. Anyway, I think this is maybe looking a little too closely at the bones used in the stock and not really judging the soup on its own merits. You know, I'm not I'm not sure how this conversation is coming across. Uh, <laughs> it's i think it's fine it's just like this is the level of resolution where it's hard to uh uh tease apart the true intentions or the true knowledge that someone had like you know and we're talking about this with a critical eye towards joshi but just to be fair like the the essay that we talked about in skelos that that shanks wrote there's a lot of hypotheses for how howard perhaps like formed his worldview based on a likely uh, situation of he might've read this and then he thought about this and it led to that. And I can't get into the particulars just cause it's a lot. <laughs> there's right. multiple, there's multiple references there, but it is a, it is a working hypothesis, you know, right. It's not uh, a, t- a totally falsifiable hypothesis at that. Right. Right. Yeah. You can only base it on the evidence that you have and the evidence that we have includes books that he had on his shelf that is, i have a lot of books on my shelf that i've never read <laughs> yeah you know? yeah right right <laughs> uh, so you know uh, all these things sort of co- <laughs> well all these things kind of coalesce into uh, a great big sort of unknown right we will never know we can't we can't talk to howard and ask him like where did you get the idea for the story we can only look at the letters and and read the story and look at his correspondences and look at the books that he had on his shelf and, and guess, like you said, that, that soup is tasty. We can and, say and the that. soup is tasty. Yeah. <laughs> Damn right. It's all a fever dream all anyway, man. Tonight. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a total fever, <laughs> fever dream. So we need a King say these Vikings, but it can't be a Pict or a Celt or a Britain. Right. Right. It's gotta be a true blue King, right? Yeah. Gotta be a true King. Otherwise we'll go to the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> Take our ball and go home. <laughs> and so Bran goes and, and thinks about this and consults his uh, wizard, Gonar. Gonar is a cool dude. He uh, he talks with Gonar the Elder all the time. Like, they just fall asleep and have little powwows, it seems. <laughs> and they're separated across millennia. And Gonar is like, hey, 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 I can help us. I can, I can, <laughs> dude, you want a king? I can get you a king. king. By by two (laughs) o'clock. With a crown. 2 a.m. With a crown. Just chill. And sure enough, we get a king, right? We get King effing Cole. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, Cole uh, kind of emerging from the mists, right? And uh, this is really, really cool because in other weird tales and other pulps, there have been references to other stories, right? You know, the Necronomicon is a classic example. Um, but never before in, in the stories that I've read have two characters teamed up, uh, you know, from the same creator or different creators, uh, from completely different times and eras. Like this is something we take for granted today in comics and in movies and stuff, but this is really, really cool and really unique in terms of, uh, it's actual pulp roots. Yeah. And so this is, you know, this story came out in 1930. The, the two Cole stories that we've talked about previously both came out in 29. So, so we really do have an established character that's walking through the mists coming forth millennia or here. And, but, but call, he's our, our philosopher King. He's a, uh, he's a pondering dude, but he's also a badass that's j- just thinking about the situation. He's like, eh, I've had some crazy dreams. I've, I've, I've fought some battles in my head. <laughs> while I've been asleep. I'm uh, I'm here. I'm just going to roll with this. He, he thinks he's in a, like a dream, like a, a very vivid dream. And he sees Bran and he's like, confuses him for his friend Brule, right? right. Like you're Brule, but you're not Brule, but you've got Brule's gem that I gave Brule, but that doesn't make any sense. But, oh, well, this is just a dream. I'll just, I'll let it ride and see where we go. So Cole, I guess to, to move, to move the elements along, Cole does battle with uh, Ragnar, right? Uh, uh, nope, Ragnar's dead. This is oh. Wolf Wolf here. Wolf here, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, there's a throwdown, and I thought this was extremely well written. I mean, this is classic Howard fight scene, man, like man on man, that kind of thing. And ultimately, Wolf here gets it, uh, and Cole just to a fever pitch wins over the Norsemen. Like they are, they are in his pocket. At first, though, they're like, "No, this man is a ghost, or you've summoned him out of time, or his his he doesn't look like us. We're not going to let him be a, be a king." Um, he takes a scratch or t- gets wounded during this battle with uh-huh. Wolf here, and and the men see him bleed, and they are then convinced. They see his wound, and then they believe, right? Which you know, I, I don't think is necessarily a a reference to Christ as a savior, but. It's there. It is. They don't believe in him until he. Until yeah, it's he's a little wounded. doubting Thomas. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it's. I think it's cool how Wolf here meets his end. Cole basically tosses him about fifteen feet away, and he lands right. on his head. Like it's not just like, oh yeah, he swings a sword and it cleaves his skull. Uh, like he cuts the horn off of his Viking helm. That kind of stuff happens, and so there's some cool action. But it ends that Cole just gets you know enraged and just. Picks him, picks him up and gives him a little bit of a toss and he lands a little bit wrong on his head. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't get Which up. Which is, it's cool because they sort of talk about Cole is wearing all of his ancient super technology, right? His ancient aliens, like Velusian armor. Yeah. Right, yeah. It sort of gives him superpowers. But in the end, yeah, you're right. He physically just dismantles this guy. It's not a, a super sword that cuts him down. He just crumples him like tissue paper. Yeah. And so now, like you said, Luke, the Vikings are, are in Cole's pocket 
And that means that they're ready to do whatever brand wants them to do. And night, night is passing quickly, like the, the first rays of, of sunlight are quickly starting to come over the fields. And I think, you know, something we didn't mention before, but I think it's a great bit of setting that, that Howard does here to describe this, this battle that's to occur. Like it's a pitched battle. And as far as that, uh, Bran McMoran knows where he wants his men to be and the, the Romans are going to come to him. So in the distance, you can see the orderly rows of the fires in the distance of the, of the Romans. And, and we have these loose affiliations of the men that Bran McMoran's going to unify, uh, or, you know, at least try to try to put up a, a good fight here. And so once they, they get these Norsemen, it's about morning. So they got to quickly like move to their places. And it's not given. We're not given a total clear picture of what Bran has in, like, what his overall master plan is. We have the rough ideas of the Norsemen need to to hold the hot gates kind of situation, and they're going to do a pincher move and a, some surprise attacks. But we don't totally get Bran's vision for how this battle is going to play out until, of course, the battle plays out. <laughs> right. So, John, do you want to give us a, a an overview of what Bran's master plan is here? He's going to stage the Vikings and King Cole in the hot gates, the, this narrow pass. And they're going to hold this while the picks hide underneath the, the heather and are sort of all around this valley that they're going to fight in. While the Gales and the Britons are going to hide up on the peaks amongst some trees i guess sort of like they're gonna hide in the vegetation as well yeah, right the yeah. high the high weeds and the heather and the trees and stuff marcus cerilius i guess is what we call him Julius, I, yeah. I guess Julius, Julius is going to be goaded into attacking he's going to see a small defensive force and he's going to say this is going to be easy we roman legionnaires are going to march right through this like butter through or a knife through butter and they take the bait and get down into this valley and they have to sort of wait out this period to let the Romans take the bait. They have to get them so engaged with the battle that they can then spring the trap. So the Vikings fight these Roman legionnaires and they hold this ground. They don't give an inch. It's very brutal. There's death. There's blood mist hanging in the air. And our POV character, as Luke said, Cormac, he loses his nerve at this point, sort of. He can't stand the thought that all these Vikings are going to die and that Bran hasn't called the rest of them into battle yet. And he sort of lets loose with a war cry and everybody charges into battle at this point. Yeah, and, and to a man, those those Northerners perish, right? Like, that's how the battle ultimately plays out. They're able to right. rally around and put all of these Romans within uh, uh, a total flanked position. And so the Romans get a sense of what's up. So they're going to make one big final push to try to just plow through the northern forces to, to break free. Yeah. And that's like ultimately the, the mass slaughter. Like it, the way it reads, like after the battle's complete, I think at one point Howard writes that Cormac like walks through a lake of blood or like uses the term like a lake of blood, which is just such a description that just floors you to think about. Cause it's not a puddle. It's not, uh, you know, 
a mountain like or like a like a hill of bodies. It's like something just that defies comprehension by using that term lake, and it really is good. I like that he said there's this there's a haze of red that the air is literally misted yeah. with blood and iron yeah. floating through it. That that's how many people have died in this this trap. But the shield wall, and I, I want to ask a question about that in a second, but the shield wall that the Vikings used to keep the Romans from uh, plowing through did not move. They held the line, which is so badass. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it is cinematic in its, in its, uh, in its badassity, I guess. And it really makes me want to pop in the, the 300 uh, on, on Blu-ray and watch it. This, this story gets my, gets what my, is your profession? <laughs> 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 yeah, I think it's cool, too. You know, early in the story, Bran and Cormac are walking through the various forces, and we get some great introductions to the different types of fighting men that Bran has at his disposal. And he just doesn't have enough of any one group. He has these chariots that are uh, just straight up, like, lawnmower killing machines that he ultimately uses. But it, he doesn't have, like, any one group that's going to win this battle. It's kind of the culmination of everything. So even like the, uh, even the Pictish, uh, men that are, you know, that are brands, you know, his most immediate men that are in his service, you know, they're kind of, they're described in this monstrous way. Maybe they're a bit deformed, but they're ferocious. Like before the battle starts, one of my, I think probably my favorite part of the whole story is where, it's it's eerie to Cormac how close the Romans are getting to these pits, and the picks are just invisible and they're not seen. But there's like one Roman that that gets a little bit of wind, and out of nowhere these picks just come out of the heather and uh, do a, a silent assassin murder of this guy, and then the they grab the body, the horse, like everything just sort of disappears <laughs> before the alarm can be raised. And I thought that was just so eerie the way that it's described. So even, even the lowly Pictish, uh, deformed, monstrous Cretans are, are given their moment to shine at the first. Yeah. Everybody has uh, a, a cool moment here, uh, except the Romans. One thing that's apparent uh, through all that is this hubris of the Romans. They believe that they're going to just chop down these Viking soldiers and this is going to be really easy. And I think it's a commentary, right? From Howard's perspective, maybe. Uh, and it's maybe not necessarily leveled directly at Romans, but civilization in general, like right. you, you become civilized and you become complacent and you stop taking the, uncivilized seriously and that actually does prove to be the romans undoing in this story yeah and we have uh john like you mentioned the 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 vikings they don't give an inch uh and they they do uh all die and that's that is a choice ultimately that bran made you know the all of these deaths are on his hands and so as the battle is wrapping up i guess i guess we should mention cole's fate right like he's being pushed up a hill mm -hmm. and he's fighting uh, a losing battle yeah so he starts the battle with uh armed with a mace which i thought was pretty cool like yeah yeah i don't recall any scenes where conan was armed with a mace but you know it's been a while since we read those so he may have been but i thought it was striking that he was standing there 
armed with a mace and a shield and ready to take on the world. But at the end of the battle, he's lost his mace and he's got a sword and uh, he's fighting off all these Romans that have surrounded him on this precipice. Yep. And just then, the sun begins to set and Cole vanishes. He just sort of, yeah, just just disappears before Cormac's eyes. Yeah. Uh, and the, the eyes of the, the final couple uh, Romans that were about to to, you know, take his number. So, so he's gone. The battle concludes. I mean, essentially, nearly all of the Romans have died. There are a handful of prisoners that are mm. that are kept, and I guess I like to think that you know, Bran being a a, a smart king is going to send some guys out, like turn them loose, and say, you know, tell them what what happened here. Witness, <laughs> witness me. Uh, yeah, sends them south of the wall. Yeah. Never come back. Yeah, I really, I really do like the way this story ends quite a bit. And I also like this tension that we get at the end between Cormac and Bran. That was something, that was something yeah, interesting. I was about to mention that, that it doesn't end entirely amicably that Cormac is really ticked at Bran for letting all of the Vikings die. I sacrificed the Northmen, yes, and my heart is sore within me, for they were men. But had I given the order when you would have desired, all might have gone awry. The Romans were not yet massed in the narrow mouth of the gorge and might have had time and space to form their ranks again and beat us off. I waited until the last moment, and the reavers died. A king belongs to his people and cannot let either his own feelings or the lives of men influence him. Now my people are saved, but my heart is cold in my breast. So at least he feels bad about it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, being a, being a king is a lonely, lonely thing. And heavy is the crown here. Like, Bran's got his first taste of the decisions that he's going to have to make if he's going to keep these men allied and, and try to hold the line against the Romans, against this encroachment, right? Right. It's depressing. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. I love that perspective we're getting here. I mean, it, it just flows throughout Howard's stuff, but really, like Rusty mentioned in the previous episode, like it's just so apparent here the hopelessness of a of a situation. Like you're you're just delaying the inevitable here. Bran wants to know what happened with Cull at the end of the story. The the last scene of the story is Bran asking after Cull. Right, John? What happens? The wizard shows up. Gonar shows up and says, maybe he time-traveled forward, maybe we time-traveled backward. Maybe it was a dream, maybe it was all real, uh, but he woke up on a silken cushion in his time, and he was covered in cuts and bruises, and we have all told the legend of King Cull and his time-traveling adventures, so we know this all to be true. I sort of. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, I, I like the the last little scene here is very Cole-like in that it gets at the heart of what is real and what's a dream and yeah. and all of those things. It's it's very philosophical. Yes, dark. Yes, bleak. But I enjoy it. Yeah, it truly is a beautiful story. The, the way that it the way that it concludes. And I think Howard liked it, too. Um, in a letter to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft from around September 1930, he says, um, Thank you very much for the kind things you said about the brand cult. I noticed the current Weird Tales announces my Kings of the Night for next month's issue. I hope you like the story. 
Bran is one of the kings. I intend to take your advice about writing a series of tales deal- dealing with Bran. In a letter to his friend Tevis Clyde Smith uh, around the same time, he says, Weird Tales announces for next month's issue my story, Kings of the Night. Um, and then he says $120. So that's how much he was paid for it. Um, that would be 1650 bucks today, if, if you're curious. Uh, some ways, this story is the best I ever wrote. Nothing very weird about it, but good battle stuff, if I do say so myself. Nothing weird about it except the time-traveling, Belugian, <laughs> uh, pre-Atlantean king. <laughs> it's got all kinds of good elements to it, though, man. This is a great, great story. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. What do you think, John? I dug it quite a bit. Yeah, similar. I, I like it a lot. Um, it's, I think it, it does a really great job. Uh, and, and by it, I guess, I mean, Howard's writing does a, a remarkable job of, in the story, comparing and contrasting Cole and Bran McMorn. You know, the, the whole Bran is, a, is very the, the ends justify the means kind of guy. Cole, as we've seen, seems to be very lawful good, right? He does the right thing no matter what. He fights the serpent people no matter what. Um, and if you pull Conan in... Conan is like a mix of these two guys, I think. Right. Which is pretty interesting. Yeah, and you know, just my my impressions and, and how I how I enjoyed this story. I really appreciated it because it was kind of a complete story. Like the beginning is very engaging. We didn't really talk about the very first beat, but it's a but it's a sacrifice, right? Like we get this true. this primitive uh, altar, and and things are are pretty spooky. Uh, but we we soon fall out of that, and we get the the world building, the establishment of these various fighting groups. Then we get the supernatural element of Cole coming in. Like there's all through the front end, it's engaging. All through the middle, it, you get basically Cole versus Wolf here, and that's like a high point. Uh, you know, a very intimate fight scene. And then the latter portion of the story is this more extended battle that takes place. So I think the action is appropriately paced. I think the story as a whole has uh, really, uh, really high marks as far as the intro, the middle and the ending. He's, he lands all three aspects of that story as opposed to, many other stories that we've talked about that, that either have a strong start or a strong finish They're you know, they're, they're half, they're half cocked or, you know, not fully, fully fleshed out. This is the real deal. This would definitely be a story that I would recommend to somebody wanting to get into Howard, like this story specifically. Yeah, I think I would too. So what's next Luke? Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the dark man, right? Yeah. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to wrap things up with worms of the earth. That's and correct. that is the the end of the road. So we have two more stories to cover. And then, of course, we'll probably do like a wrap-up reflection episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're getting close. We're getting close. But I think before we stop recording, we've got a couple other elements we wanted to hit on, right? That's true. Yeah, we've got some feedback to get into. Uh, so let's transition over to a little bit of feedback. Yeah, we have... Uh, a voicemail here to play. This is from Evil Ed. He gives us uh, his read on the movie She that we that we referenced uh, a couple a couple episodes back. Uh, and when we talk about She, we're talking about 
S and M eighties attire, uh, rock and roll post apocalyptic barbarians. Yeah. So let's hear. Let's hear what Ed has to say. Hey, uh, guys, Evil Ed here with my quick uh, recommendation about the apocalyptic version of She from the 1980s. All I can tell you is never revisit a movie that you haven't seen in 30 years. Apparently, I remember it in Rose Color Glasses. I highly do not recommend it unless it's you and a bunch of friends ready to get drunk and see some horrible acting and worse battles, and a mutant pie-pie creature. Anyway, uh, looking forward to hearing the next episode, and I'm going to go crawl in a corner and, and worry about what other movies from my childhood I don't want to revisit. See y'all guys on the podcast world. Bye. <laughs> Evil Ed is awesome, firstly. So, Ed, thanks for sending us that voicemail and for the uh, review of the 1980s version of She. That stars Sandal Bergman. And is anyone else that we would know in that film? I don't know. I have not seen it. I have not seen it From either. that, I think I'll probably uh, hold off for a little bit longer. Well, Ed did say don't watch it unless you're ready to get drunk with your friends. So, you know, we could watch it. <laughs> we just need to be properly prepared, I think. So, cool. So, thank you very much for that, Ed. Appreciate it. We appreciate it. Anybody else? Send us a send us an MP3 file. Let us know what's what's on your mind. Uh, we have some detailed uh, correspondence to get in here. Uh, a couple different emails from Alice, and this is the kind of stuff that that we that we really enjoy. It's not just like a one or two sentences. It's a it's <laughs> cohesive thoughts that maybe are a bit more. Uh, together than than what we come up with on the cuff when we record things oh yes this is, uh, this. <laughs> so we appreciate uh alice's perspective on this but if you guys recall when we we're discussing the movie she at least the the horror or i'm sorry not horror but the the hammer film uh version of that story we talked about aisha and ustain as potential uh feminist uh forces within the story they're they're certainly uh feminine tropes that can that can be talked about and that was one thing i think that we really stressed was how uh by the numbers some of the the overall actions of those those characters were uh but what alice basically says here is that listening to your most recent episode uh in your discussion of feminism and the portrayals of aisha and Ustain, uh skip a little bit here just to just to abbreviate things but the dominant powerful woman who wants to control or possess men is a very old trope the first thing that came to her mind uh specifically alice here with her email was ancient greek mythological characters like medea and uh circe uh these women are majestic and powerful yes but they are generally shown to be obstacles to heroes their behavior is something outside the natural order of things to me aisha fits very much into that trope she is powerful but unnatural and ultimately wrong uh, here as a side note, uh, Alice mentions, I feel like there is a more involved compare contrast to be made between the portrayals of powerful males and female villains and fantasy stories, but more research obviously is merited. Uh, I have a hard time trying to apply feminism to creative works in the past. A lot of things, uh, make me grip my teeth, even though intellectually I know for the time they were considered progressive. And I absolutely agree with that point. Uh, that Alice makes. I think that's something that we hit on. Like, while you might be able to glean some some feminist points or uh, positive aspects from 
from characters like Aisha. Ultimately, they are uh, a little bit by the numbers or might still fall under the control of the men within the stories, that sort of thing. Uh, And then as a follow-up, Alice sends a second email here that was really useful. She had another thought in the portrayal of Aisha as I was mulling it over this morning. And she says here in parentheses, warning for social justice warrior speak, which we're we're totally cool with. So bring it. This is great. Uh, No matter how powerful or authoritative a woman is, if her primary motivation is spite and jealousy, it really undercuts the characterization. This is something that you mentioned, John, in that story. So uh, it seems like you and Alice are allied on that point. It feeds into a patriarchal characterization of women, mostly motivated by desire for male attention and generally behaving as follows. And this is kind of... uh, just just a really basic dichotomy that Alice draws here, but it's 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 bang on. Good women are kind, forgiving, forgiving, understanding, and subservient, oftentimes. Uh, bad women are jealous, catty, possessive, and domineering. And that's those are the classic uh, faulty tropes that you can see in in media across across the years, right? So so obviously uh, Aisha is a driver of the narrative. Uh, but still, the story unfolds from a male perspective, and Ustain and Aisha are victimized and punished, respectively. And I totally buy that. Like, that's, I guess, my faults with the story, like, by the end of it, with the, the silly choices that Aisha makes. It's her hubris that's her, di- her downfall. And you would think that a woman that's as wise and sorceress, you know, such a powerful sorceress as her, she would, she would see the end coming, but she's still enamored with this man and just sort of falls into it. I, I think those are great points. And, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that Alice took the time to, to write that out is it's uh, it's fantastic to hear uh, that point of view because, you know, we're, we're three guys, cis white men in our thirties, <laughs> you know, who, uh, you know, it, it's, I don't know how to really say this beyond it's, it's great to hear, um, from someone who has experiences that we don't have. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you were reading the email, I was thinking about, uh, other characters who are, who would fall into this sort of trope as well. And I can't pull any out of my head right at the moment, but you know, these, these tropes that Alice discusses and this, particularly this dichotomy, the, the good, bad, uh, woman dichotomy here that's definitely something that you see throughout fiction right not just in terms of uh uh uh, fantasy or science fiction like that's that's something that you know you you definitely see in in noir films and and throughout horror horror yeah that's it's it's definitely this is the final girl this is the maiden and the whore like Uh that's that's what we're talking about here yeah so it would be interesting to me to hear um, and, and I guess you didn't mention this, but, uh, Alice said that she enjoyed the Jarell of Joyry stories. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I hope that we can get back into those stories at some point in the future and, and talk some more CL more, but it would be interesting to compare, uh, the Jarell story that we did, the, the black God's kiss to the, uh, dark Agnes stories. Um, one of those was written by CL Moore. Uh, one was written by Robert E. Howard, and it would be interesting to hear, uh, I, I guess, apply this model to both of those stories mm-hmm. and see how things shake out, I guess, w- would be a, a pretty interesting converse- conversation. So, Alice, if you're feeling up to it. Yeah, I'm excited but- to read more of Jarrell, too. That's 
the, the way we left it, that's some uh, <laughs> some surreal stories that are out there, I think. Uh, and it would be interesting to contrast Howard's uh, more grounded writing style mm-hmm. with with uh, C.L. Moore's sort of mystic prose, like at least just from the short bit that we read. Right. Cool. Yeah. So thanks, Alice, very much for the, the emails and, and for the insight. Uh, that was awesome. Cool. So that kind of that kind of wraps us up here. Uh, thank you all very much for that feedback. Uh, like we mentioned, our next story is going to be the Dark Man, and then the 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 big crescendo, the the epic closer, is going to be uh, Worms of the Earth. So that's where we're going. We're coming in on the end of the last the the last couple episodes here of the Lost the Lost Road. Uh, but before we go, Josh, how can people find us? Uh, you can find us on the web at http colon forward slash forward slash the chromecast.blogspot.com. You can call us and leave a voicemail like Evil Ed did. Ed, you're the man. 859-429-CROM. Uh, you can uh, find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Chromecast, Twitter at the Chromecast. And uh, yeah, we're out there. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. You can stream us. You can download us. You can email us. You can call us. You can do whatever you want with us in terms of uh, interacting with us as a podcast. We, uh, we will see you soon, just a little bit on down the road.
Bonsoir, Yosho! <laughs>